to a few of the Jesuits in our office in the days leading up to my departure for Jordan, we were discussing the kinds of work and ministry I would be seeing, classes for refugees, interreligious dialogue, parish work, etc. The stories seemed straightforward enough. But then one of them said, don't forget to ask about Baghdad College. Now, I'm no scholar of geography, but by my count, Baghdad is not to be found in Jordan. And indeed, a subsequent glance at a map confirmed my suspicions. Baghdad is in fact in Iraq. But this casual comment from one of my Jesuit colleagues sent me down something of a rabbit hole before, during, and after my trip. Baghdad College, it would seem, sowed the seeds, if begrudgingly so, for the work of the Jesuits in Jordan. And as I explored the history a little more, talking with Jesuits and their collaborators in and out of Jordan, it would seem that Baghdad College and its legacy has taken on an almost mythical quality. And so we begin the story there, because Baghdad College could be seen as a historical footnote to the Jordanian mission. After all, both efforts have lasted for roughly the same amount of time, but the psychological and spiritual impact of Baghdad College's legacy, at least to an outsider like me, seem enormous and worth exploring. So I dug up the 1994 book on the topic by the late Father Joseph F. McDonald, Jesuits by the Tigris, Men for Others in Baghdad, and I started to read. Welcome to AMDG. I'm Eric Clayton. This is the third and final episode for my recent trip to visit the North American Jesuits in Jordan. Father McDonald writes, The brief span of 37 Jesuit years at Baghdad College contrasts with the centuries of Christian presence in the Middle East. St. Ignatius always wanted to send his Jesuits to the Holy Land. He was fascinated by Islam. Due to Muslim control of the Holy Land, he sent Jesuits to Egypt in 1550, only 10 years into the Society of Jesus' existence. We have to accept the genius of St. Ignatius, who always wanted his men to be in the Holy Land, okay? And they never got there until the Pontifical Biblical mission was established, Pontifical Biblical Institute was established, which is essentially a branch of a Roman seminary. Mm -hmm. So it was separate from whatever Ignatius had to say about the genius of being here. That's Father Michael Linden. He is, at least at the time of this recording, superior for the Jesuit community in Jordan and Iraq. I think the genius of being here is uh, a couple of ways. Number one, if you're in the Holy Land and you begin to adapt to it, and if you're in the ancient Near East, or you begin to relate to the ancient Near East, you begin to establish in your imagination and in your prayer life what some people call the fifth gospel. That is to say, you get a very good picture of the air, the buildings, the locations, the transport, the scents, the foods, the, and some of the cultural elements that are present in if, the New Testament of Jesus of Nazareth. And then there is, of course, the question of evolution of Christianity itself. And this is where discernment comes in, okay? And this is where uh, an international order like the Jesuits and its practice of international capacities of discernment, of, of uh, you know, processes of wider, ordinary discernment, and then 
discernment of choices, discernment of spirits with respect to those choices. This is, a, this is a, an important edge for the churches and for the people of God. The Jesuits, from the time of Ignatius to the present, have been interested in dialogue with the Muslim world. St. Ignatius had thought to found colleges where future missionaries could study Arabic. Baghdad, as a key center of the Muslim world, naturally attracted the Jesuits, and in 1850, two Jesuits, at the request of the Vatican, joined a caravan headed to Baghdad to determine if establishing a school was feasible. Seeing as they arrived, both going to and coming from the city, they decided that perhaps the time wasn't yet right. Proselytizing was never the goal of the Jesuits at Baghdad College. In fact, it was the view of the Jesuits that encouraging and empowering Christians in their own lives of faith would ultimately be the best effective way to spread the gospel. The Jesuits then and now saw great value in educating Christians and Muslims together, providing space for interreligious dialogue and greater mutual understanding and tolerance. Here you can hear Father Rob McChesney, who is currently at the Jesuit Center in Amman, reflect a little bit on what it means to have both Muslim and Christian students in his classes. Here the law is you may not evangelize Christianity or any other religion than Islam. What I learned was, because of its openness and its tolerance, that one can talk about Christianity or any religion in a comparative religion format. So I would frequently cite the Bible. I say, look, you all know I'm an Abuna, a Christian father. Um, so here's what the Bible says. Here's what Jesus, Isa, says. Isa's in the Quran. He's highly regarded. Uh, here's what the Bible says. Here's what Christianity teaches about abortion, about uh, gender-based violence. Uh, what does the Quran teach? And then we go back and forth, and they love this. They love to learn about their own tradition, and they, learn, they love to learn about other traditions. And what we're doing, again, I think of Pope Francis, we are doing interreligious dialogue, you know, starting as a football game or an English class, because there is a tendency for them to get intolerant of other perspectives. And so one of the ground rules of Father Roberts, English language D1 conversation, every perspective is respected. The original request for a Jesuit-run university in Baghdad came from the Chaldean Patriarch in 1921, who himself was a graduate of the Jesuit University St. Joseph in Beirut. Pope Pius XI heard his request, as well as requests from other bishops and priests of varying Middle Eastern rites. He asked then-Jesuit Father General Ledochowski, a Polish-born priest and the 26th Superior General of the Society of Jesus, to take on the task. It was determined that English-speaking priests were most needed, and at that time, North American Jesuits were most available. Fast forward to 1932, 
Four Jesuits are missioned to Iraq to begin the work of Baghdad College. Over the years, the number of Jesuits would grow, primarily representing what was then the New England province. In 1956, the Jesuits would expand their educational efforts in Iraq by establishing Al-Hikmah University, an effort to provide graduates of Baghdad College with further educational opportunities without having to leave Iraq. Let's fast forward again. A coup in Iraq in 1968, known as the July Revolution, brought immediate and devastating changes to the Jesuit mission there. On November 25, 1968, the 28 Jesuits working at Al-Hikmah University were expelled from Baghdad and forced to leave the country within five days. Nine months later, the 33 Jesuits at Baghdad College faced the same ultimatum. Both schools were Iraqized, meaning the government took control of the properties. That means that nearly overnight, the Jesuits lost 193 acres, encompassing 14 buildings and the contents of two libraries. No reason was ever given for the dismissal of the Jesuits. The Jesuits were, uh, uh, the American Jesuits were expelled right. from Iraq in 1967 and in 1968, two batches. Uh, and uh, a lot of them returned to the United States, to the Boston area. They were New England Jesuits and, and filtered into other works. And a number, who, especially those who had very good uh, command of Arabic, uh, moved into environments of the new Near East province. The Near East province was established by Father General in the mid-1950s uh, of an amalgam of missions such as in Egypt and Lebanon. And, uh, and so there was an expansionary capacity of this new Near East province in the Arab-speaking world. And so a number of the uh, men who had sufficient Arabic began to filter into the works of the new Near East province. Hmm. And, uh, and some of them, uh, you know, the, uh, there's a couple still around today who are venerable and uh, very endeared, uh, lo lovely elder fathers one in Lebanon and one in Cairo. And they just never left the Middle East, right? They after? never left the Middle East and became part of this new province. It's yeah. a very Jesuit mission yeah. story, right? That's yeah. awesome. And here is where the story of the Jesuits in Jordan actually begins. Because the question for the 60 or so Jesuits who were forced from Iraq was this, what next? Imagine a community of highly skilled and specialized individuals, fluent in Arabic and passionate about their work as educators are suddenly out of a job. Certainly some, if not all, of those skills translate back to work in North America. But this was a group who had insights and training in interreligious dialogue at a moment in time when it seemed increasingly important. And after all, many held out hope that what was lost in Baghdad, the opportunity to educate, to dialogue, to learn, could be recovered or restarted elsewhere. In the end, several Jesuits did stay in the region. One of them, Father Joseph Ryan, ultimately found his way to Amman, Jordan in 1984, after working in Beirut, and Worcester Mass. In Jordan, he served for seven years as the director of the Office of the Pontifical Mission for Palestine. And that's where our story picks back up. What began in Jordan was actually a Jesuit who had been in Baghdad, uh, and he uh, was looking for work with the, with the Pontifical Mission for Palestine, who have an office nearby. And they suggested he come to Jordan and be part of their work. And this was in the early 1980s. And, and father, father was able to come and uh, 
work with the pontifical mission to establish one of the classic types of work that is around in the Middle East called the library mm. in a situation where Christians and say Catholics would be a, a huge minority a minority by a huge measure so you're uh, two or three percent of the population correct there, right? two or three percent of the population uh, libraries became places where people could uh, associate freely with other Christians and in 1985, 86, 87 there were men here and then uh, it became clear that the Patriarch of Jerusalem who was our Archbishop uh, requested of the American Jesuits that they establish a pastoral presence for the growing number of English-speaking Catholics in Jordan uh, and they were largely Filipino workers in domestic and sometimes uh, trades uh, and others who were beginning to use Jordan more and more as what you call the safe place in the Middle East where uh, more and more agencies and consulates could establish their functioning. Mm -hmm. The Filipino community has been in Jordan for a long time, large numbers, 20,000 now, maybe 30,000. They take uh, domestic service jobs, nannies, um, dishwashers, this kind of thing. Uh, they are hardworking people, honest people, so the Jordanian people love to hire them. They're mostly Roman Catholic, uh, and so they come many of them by themselves, many of them lonely. Women, 99% women to take the, this profile of jobs. And uh, so the church is where they gather. The church is the center. And uh, the Jesuit center was long responsible for the Filipino ministry since we at the Jesuit center are responsible for English language religious formation, sacramental formation. One of the greatest surprises and genuine pleasures of my time in Jordan was encountering this Filipino community. Father Rob McChesney, that was whose voice you just heard, invited me to attend a mass he was celebrating with the Filipinos. The place was packed and it was Friday. But who would have guessed that a linchpin to the Jesuit presence in Jordan, indeed in the Middle East, would be a community from Southeast Asia and a growing one at that. Some of the members I met had been there for a long time and some were newcomers just that week. What really struck me though were two things, hospitality and identity. After mass, I was invited to attend a reception of sorts, tons of food, Jordanian and Filipino, and the place was packed. Members of the community brought buried dishes to share, and I was instructed to try the mansa, the national dish of Jordan, whose name I probably just butchered. It's lamb cooked in fermented yogurt and served over rice. It was a big deal that we were eating this, and the people there were excited to have some but they were just as excited to see my reaction. I'll tell you, it was quite delicious. But even though the highlight of the meal was a Jordanian dish, Filipino culture and identity hung heavy in the room. Most importantly, the people that couldn't be there. At mass, we had prayed for those members of the community who were being deported. We prayed for those folks back home in the Philippines. Now, gathered together, we prayed for the members of the community there, around us, who needed help working in sometimes difficult positions. The life of a domestic worker is not glamorous. 
nor is it always safe. Lord, we want you to bless for Cortita Jonathan's birthday for today. Bless her for that she'll have a good life for for all of us, for all of our people, and that the people will uh, will all will always um, remind her name that she's one of the group of Kanza Poveda, which is her name, uh, Tita Jonathan. We want people also put the bless for for our. Um, and then, around hour three or four of the gathering, a member of the community who had recently returned from work in Iraq gathered the women together to instruct them in personal finances. It was then uh, that I pulled Elisa Estrada aside, a leader of the community, to hear some of her reflections. Uh, I'm Elisa Estrada from the Philippines, member of the Teresian Association, founded by St. Pedro Poveda in 1911. I'm here because our association is being invited to manage the Pontifical Mission Library, which is funded by the Catholic Near East Welfare Association. When, I, when we, the association, arrived here, the director was Father Joseph Ryan. He was a Jesuit. That's the same Father Joseph Ryan that we mentioned earlier, the very first Jesuit to arrive in 1984 and the starting point for what became the Jesuit Center that we know today. So we were very lucky. I, I, for one, I'm very lucky to work with him because he's very well qualified as a director for the Catholic Near East Welfare Association here in Jordan. He did help us, supported us in building up this library for the locals. So we have this uh, Vatican library, uh, which we have different languages, mostly Arabic, English, French and Spanish, as well as German and other languages. So with the help of Father Ryan, we were able to set up this library. But in our apostolate during the weekends, Father Ryan and other Jesuits, Father Tony Paquette, they were here in 1985. Uh, they, were, they started to, to celebrate masses for the foreigners, um, diplomats, skilled workers, domestic helpers, and for us, we were asked to help him in animating the liturgy. One thing is clear. The work and presence of the Jesuits has sustained this community. And who would have guessed it, right? Essentially, what had begun as a foothold in Jordan evolved into an English-speaking ministry serving those most in need, a community of Filipinas who was nearly invisible to the larger Jordanian community. And now, decades later, the Jesuit Center serves a still-growing community, including refugees. I think what always amazed me throughout my travels in Jordan was people's ability to remember names, the names of the Jesuits who had passed through and left some mark on their lives. Father Ryan and Father Tony uh, the, sowed the seeds, no? and then now other Jesuits who are coming now uh, as if they are just enjoying the seeds that has grown that Father Ryan and Father Tony planted when they came here in 1985. And you were telling tell me downstairs, right, that you used to cook, um, make cakes. You have, like, a, back in the early days, right, like 100, 150 people in your small apartment. Right? Yes. Because they were looking for something to do. Yeah, because these people, they, they have only their day off maybe once in a year or twice a year, other every weekend. So during celebration, with their birthdays or anniversaries, wedding anniversary or the baptism, 
we gather them together and we celebrate, we sing together, and the Jesuits were always there. Father Ryan, Father Tony, Father Paquette, uh, uh, Tony Paquette, Father Kevin O'Connell for almost 10 years here. He was just like a Filipino. You bring him to the, to the house of the ambassador, or you bring him in, in a small shanty house, he's the same Father Kevin. You can serve him anything he, you know, he adapt himself. Also Father Al, Alfred Hicks, he was here. Father Tom Fitzpatrick, he was my spiritual director. And Father Clarence Burby, he was working for the, for the Arabic uh, community. And of course we have now Father uh, Michael Linden, Father John Sheehan, Father Robert, and you know they are really amazing. I don't, maybe I'm going to try to get a little closer. Usually I come the other way and so I know exactly where to park. Yeah, I don't mind walking. And, um, well, we just don't know what it's going to be doing on the other end, that's all. That's true. The first night I was in Jordan, Father John Sheehan took me to a dinner party to meet some of the parishioners. It was a great example in real time of the impact the Jesuits continue to have in Jordan. I don't kid myself that anyone gathered there to talk to me. It was because Father John had invited them to. The specter of Baghdad College reemerged. Here, our hostess Vivian had firsthand experience. And so I asked her about it, seeing as she was a direct link between the Jesuits then and now. The best doctors, the best uh, engineers, the best uh, in, in my, when I grow up and I know, oh yeah, yeah, he's from, uh, or uh, we hear about all this uh, reunion uh, it's a very well-known people in their profession, all graduated by oh, the, yeah. uh, uh, the Jesuit College. Baghdad if you College. wanted an education, then yeah, that, that's the education. Yeah. But I think the lesson I at least took away was this. It's not about Baghdad College, the Jesuit Center in Amman, or even your own Jesuit alma mater. It's about the identity, the charism, the unique spirituality that is Ignatian. These are things that last, that shape people, that go on to shape more people. It's what creates a space of welcome and hospitality. Ultimately, this sense of welcome is what makes the Jesuits so good at interreligious dialogue. It's what has inspired them to expand beyond simply English-speaking ministry into new ministries that are available now in Arabic. It's what allows Jesuits and their collaborators to read and respond to the signs of the times. How do you see that kind of spirituality play out? Um, in the long term, in people's lives. I mean, you've, you've said that, that a lot of the graduates of, of Baghdad College, yeah. you know, were some of the you know the top names in Iraq. Absolutely. So, so even here, right, in, you know, where there is no college necessarily, there's still Jesuits at work. How how do you see that play the out? The Crown Prince graduated from Georgetown for life. From a Jesuit school, and they maintain that um, network. Yeah, they they never let go of them. So it's key. the network is key. King Abdullah did graduate work at Georgetown. Georgetown, right? Yeah. The Crown Prince did his undergraduate, and one of the princesses was a Georgetown graduate. Interestingly, our story does circle back to Iraq. If you'll remember, I mentioned that Father Linden is superior of Jordan and Iraq. And you might have said, as I did, well, what does that entail, seeing as the Jesuits were expelled? To be superior in Iraq has been twofold. Uh, the, the first is it's been, it was 40 years from our expulsion till our ability to uh, travel to Iraq. I, my, my predecessor and I have been to Iraq many times, and it's establishing relationships. Uh, 
during the time of the Civil War there, or the, the War, I suppose, and we, some of, we were there before Saddam was put down as well. Um, the question was, what would we do? And of course, everybody wanted the, hundred, the, the 70 or so Jesuits who used to be in Iraq running a university and a school to get back on the plane, which is, should be on the tarmac, and land in Iraq and, and resume teaching in the classroom. Except hope, hope they kept that plane full of fuel, huh? <laughs> except, except most of them were dead. And, and the, um, the imagination of schoolboys who had become old men was a little bit disjointed, mm -hmm. okay? So uh, part of the, uh, the issue is, uh, I think we are free to discern our presence in Iraq going forward. And if there is a school, it's in a future moment, not in a present moment. And so there is that establishment of a new relationship because the Jesuits have changed in 40 years and so has Iraq. It's dramatic change. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Doris Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at, at @JesuitNews. Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook via facebook.com backslash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, Go and set the world on fire.